I'm excited. I got a full four or five pages of notes. I'm not sure we'll be able to cover everything this morning on marriage, but I'm going to endeavor to. I know my wife taught last week while I was out of country on preparing for marriage. And we just make the simple observation, if you have to be prepared to be married, then what happens if you're ill-prepared? You suffer. If something requires preparation and you're ill-prepared, then you suffer. And unfortunately, a lot of marriages suffer. And I think we can all acknowledge that a majority of us in here are Western. We, that is, we're North American. We do have Africans here and we have Latinos here. Uh, but we're going to speak from the Western construct that our understanding of marriage is almost entirely selfish, self-seeking, self-pleasing, and it's totally steered by the media we feed upon. Uh, the American church has moved away from the Bible in many, many, many areas. Marriage is one of them. Uh, I have honestly never been bitten so bad by sheep as when I'm trying to help them sort out what's about to be a marriage. And I think that's ridiculous. I don't punch sheep, but I've been tempted many, many times. It would disqualify me from being an elder because it says not a striker. But I'm telling you, sometimes you get bit hard enough, even by your own kid, you want to bite them back. Amen. We have to reevaluate our understanding of marriage. We have the Word of God that is our blueprint. We have the Word of God that is our litmus test. It's our instruction manual. And... A majority of the church doesn't follow it. I dare say many of you don't even read your Bible in between services, and you should be ashamed of yourself. But if we keep coming back to the Word, it keeps recalibrating us, and it keeps recalibrating us, and it keeps recalibrating us. Languages evolve because you don't keep bringing it back to the original dialect, and so then you have offshoots and what have you. We want to make sure we look at the Scriptures when it comes to this institution called marriage. Some would disagree. They don't like the concept of it being called an institution. I use it because it helps us in our vernacular understand this concept that is holy matrimony. Others would argue that it's more of a sacrament, and I totally agree. That's what we're going to teach on this morning. But I want you, even those of you who are married, I want your heart to be open to have things adjusted this morning. When I first took over the church, we'd only been married a month longer than when we took over the church. And I would teach on marriage from the Word of God, and folks would bristle at it. And I would hear the hearts of some, and they would say, well, I've been married longer. And then I would just reply by saying, well, that just means you've been doing it longer, longer. I don't care how long you've been married. I'm a newlywed. I'm excited. 20 years, I don't want to look like you. So I'm still fresh in the Word trying to see how to launch this thing. You've given up on the Bible and your spouse, and you think, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm the one in the Word, and you're the one who I don't want to be like. So concerning us older folks who've been married, now let me give you a, a concept that may stretch you. Your marriage should continue to grow until one of you goes home to heaven. And it, marriages go through different stages. You have honeymoon stage, then you have family creation stage, then you have parenting stage, then you have empty nesting stage, then you have retirement stage. And your marriage should be pioneering something for God in every stage so that at every stage of your marriage, your marriage is something everybody else should want. Amen. Now, here's my observation. Being a younger man, I've been married 16 years. I'm 47. Got a later start in life. I've got friends who've been married 25 years. But there are folks who have been married 40 years. I don't want to have anything like what they have when I'm 40 years married. Yes, 
I got friends. I know folks who've been married 25, 30 years. I look at their marriage. I want nothing like that in 25 to 30 years because they get settled into a rut and now they're just roommates. And it comes back to a concept of, uh, are you just wanting to grow, grow in Christ or you want to just maintain? There's a simple concept I'll read to you here from a book my wife is looking at right now. I'll just read you a paragraph. It says, you may be familiar with the distinction between a fixed mindset and a growth-based mindset. Someone with a fixed mindset believes people are the way they are and they will remain that way for the rest of their lives. We reject that notion. We reject that notion. You don't get to use it to stay the same and I don't get to use it to stay the same. We wholeheartedly in the gospel reject the fixed mindset. The fixed mindset is an excuse to stay the same and we grow in Christ. They believe that there is nothing to be done about it other than dealing with it as best they can. And please don't make your spouse have to accept that with you. If you love your spouse, you should be growing in Christ. We're going to talk about the sacrament of marriage. Of all the sacraments of the church, seven of them, this is the one the Bible calls a true sacrament, and this is the one the Bible calls a great sacrament. Ephesians 5 says this is a great mystery. Mystery is sacramentus in this Latin, which is where we get the word mystery. The great sacrament. That means this marriage of ours ought to be the greatest thing we have working in our life. Child rearing is a small stage. We don't give everything to parenting and leave nothing for our marriage because once the kids are gone, they tell us now that's when evangelicals get divorced the most now empty nest stage because I look across the bed or the dining room table. I don't even know who this husband or wife is anymore. We give it all to our marriage because that's a covenant. Let me keep reading. In contrast, someone with a growth-based mindset believes that growth and transformation are always possible and that there's always more to learn about who we are, how we think, and what motivates us. There are always more dreams and desires to discover and more opportunities to consider. Now, this is a little bit secular, but I think you hear the heart of it. We don't give up and we don't stop growing. The whole reason we're still left on planet Earth is to continue to grow in Christ for his glory. So marriage, the sacrament of marriage is a seventh out of the seven. I'm skipping over three because I just don't have grace to go back and touch the others just now. We can teach on marriage every day because we're all in it somehow or another, or we want it, or we're trying to get out of it. We can teach on it and never exhaust it because it affects us every day. Sacraments, as we have said in the past few months, are rituals or rites that reflect some of the New Testament's mysteries. A sacrament is a ritual that reflects or symbolizes a spiritual truth, and in fact, it actualizes what it symbolizes. And that's one of the definitions I really appreciate. A sacrament is a ritual that actualizes or brings to pass what it symbolizes. The Catholics call the practice of sacraments the celebration of the sacrament, something we would do well to learn from. They call any sacrament a celebration. Because why wouldn't you celebrate something that God has revealed to us? Why not celebrate baptism? Why not celebrate uh, confession of sin? Why not celebrate ordination? Why not celebrate marriage? The sacrament of marriage is the one for me personally I never considered to be a sacrament. But as soon as I saw the definitions according to some of the, what are called the high churches, it was totally encapsulated in marriage. It's a ritual. It's a celebration. 
It represents what it symbolizes. It makes power available to live out what it symbolizes. It's the perfect demonstration of the definition that a sacrament is a ritual that actualizes what it symbolizes. If God is present in the ritual, why not celebrate? A sacrament makes the symbolized power available to the believer. And so the only sacrament that is so technically called by Scripture a sacrament is marriage. And in Ephesians 5, it says, I tell you, I speak of a great mystery, or this is a great mystery. Let's turn there because most Scripture this morning I'm going to read to you. We're not going to turn there. I have lots of notes. This certainly may be a message worth going back and listening to over and over and over again. I'm going to quote from the Talmud. I'm going to quote Jewish culture. And I'm not going to teach you the Talmud as if it's the Word of God, but the Talmud is Jewish doctrine. It's Jewish teaching. It would be like me quoting C.S. Lewis or Billy Graham. Billy Graham always said this, or C.S. Lewis said that, or Martin Luther said this, or John Piper says that. We would quote them as their interpretation and understanding of God. So when I quote from the Talmud, we're not exalting it to the Word of God. We're just reading it as Jewish doctrine and exegesis on the same scriptures we study. And some of the things I found in the Talmud, which is Jewish commentary on the law, I think, how did we not pick up on that as Christians? I'll read it. You judge it. You keep what you want, throw out what you want, but judge it by the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5 says, this is a great mystery. This is the only sacrament technically called a sacrament in the scriptures. This is a great mystery. It might be worth underlining great if you want to or highlighting it. Great mystery. That word mystery is mysterion. The Latin is sacramentus, where we get the word sacrament. But then he says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That is marriage. Marriage is a great mystery. And so what marriage represents and symbolizes is Christ's relationship with the church. Now, this is important because I was never taught that getting married would symbolize Christ in the church. Not raised in the Baptist church. No fault to them. There's a lot of things to teach. They just didn't have that revelation. Or if they did, it wasn't being taught. I didn't get it in any of the other denominational churches I ran in or even the charismatic churches I ran in. I had to learn this from Catholics. Sorry. We were so busy chasing the word of faith revival, running and dancing, and believe I receive a million dollars now. Wow, money cometh to me now. I think you're pulling that trap door. It's going to send you to hell, man. But if it's a great mystery and I can participate in it, why would I not study it? to see how to live it out. Now, the other thing we've said, and I'm not the only one, sociologists say it as well, marriages are the building block of society. Here, Paul says marriage is a great mystery. It symbolizes Christ and the church. And three weeks ago, we read the statistics of divorce rates among religious folks. The lowest divorce rate is among the pagans, the Wiccans, the Hindus, the Buddhists, and the Jews. The highest divorce rate was among the Protestants and the Evangelicals at 51% and 33% respectively. So if marriage is the building block of society and marriage is a great mystery representing Christ in the church, then it would seem us Evangelicals are responsible for the lion's share of societal destruction. We demonstrate to the world we have no concept of what marriage is, though it represents Christ in the church. We are hypocrites. We are not worth listening to. We are definitely not worth following. But it all begins as young people understanding what marriage even is and having it probably poorly modeled in front of your own home. So we have to change that. 
Even if you've been married 30 years, you don't know all that there is to marriage. It's evident because I look at your marriage and I don't want to have anything like what you have. There's not victory there. There's not romance there. There's not intimacy there. There isn't friendship there. There's just, you know, time to make the donuts. Here's our rut. Why would I divorce now? Too many miles on both these horses. I don't know if we want to trade them in. We have to get back to what the Bible says concerning marriage. So hear it again. Protestants have a 51% divorce rate. Evangelicals, which to me is under Protestantism, have a 33% divorce rate. That's the highest divorce rate of any religion in the world. Muslims are better than us. Except we claim to serve the right God. We claim to have the all-merciful Jesus. And we do. But boy, we don't know how to live it. We don't know how to actualize it. We don't know how to manifest it. But what that is a reflection of is our lack of true walk with God. And for the sake of our discussion this morning, a lack of understanding of the implications of marriage. We're getting married for the wrong reasons. Therefore, it does not work because we don't know what we're doing. So that's why we're going to talk about this in depth this morning. Because marriage is a living institution between a husband and a wife, marriage is then by its nature, and hear this carefully, marriage is a living sacrament. Marriage is a living sacrament. When all the other sacraments are momentary, ordination is a sacrament. I've been ordained. I got ordained over 20 years ago. It was a one deal, one day deal. I was, I was uh, licensed and then I got ordained here at the church. That was less than 20 years ago. Marlon and Miss Mary ordained me. And then about a year later, Dr. Barclay laid hands on me and says, what was lacking your ordination? I now lay hands on you. So, so maybe in technicality, I've had three little ordinations, but altogether, 10 minutes of my life. Communion. When we serve communion, 10 minutes in a service once a month. Water baptism, less than a minute. Maybe only once in your whole life. Laying hands on the sick, what's called extreme unction in the Catholic churches. That's an ordinate, uh, a sacrament. To lay hands on the sick and anoint with oil, maybe five minutes at most. But marriage, confession, that's another one, confessional, that's, that's maybe a minute or two to confess sins. But marriage is lived every moment of the day. Every moment, every moment. Every, and to be honest, most of the church is failing. If we're supposed to represent the husband as Christ, the wife as a church, we're failing. Because 51% of the ch church says, I don't want this anymore. And they're divorcing. I don't think you'll divorce so easily when you represent what you have entered into as a covenant that is a living sacrament symbolizing to the world the almighty God and his care for his people. And his people and their devotion and obedience to their God. But again, that takes a spiritual mindset, not a bachelorette mindset, not a real housewives of Beverly Hills mindset, not a, oh my gosh, my sorority sisters are all getting married and look at it. You know, Christmas is the worst time of the year because I don't have a guy and look at them having married and look, Kelsey got married and yeah, yeah I guess you should get married too. Wear some knee-high leather boots and a little furry jacket and a big dumb hat and be divorced in a year. The ritual that makes power available in this sacrament is the actual wedding ceremony that we are all very familiar with. Every culture in the world has a wedding ceremony. It is interesting to me that only in the Christian West did we begin to trash the sacred ceremony 
The Hindus have a beautiful ceremony. Muslims have a tremendous ceremony. The Jews have a tremendous ceremony. Everywhere in the world, the people have developed ceremonies for this holy thing that even in their animistic pagan religions is still sacred to them. But here in the West, we go to the justice of the peace. We get married in parking lots. We go to Elvis impersonators. We do everything but that which is sacred. We go hire somebody. We have folks that still call us from time to time. Do you guys do weddings? Yes, we do. Not for you. Our bylaws say I can only marry members. We did that to protect ourselves from the LGBTQ mafia. To be a member of our church takes at least three months, maybe closer to four. And if I can't weed you out by then, then I guess I should marry you. But if you're hanging out just to get married, I'll preach every sermon against you till you leave. (laughs) The power made available at this wedding ceremony is the grace to be a husband to your wife and the grace to be a wife to your man. And I flat guarantee you, Elvis in Vegas cannot pray that grace upon your life. The weirdo you found online cannot pray that grace into your life. The justice of the peace or the admiral of the battleship cannot invoke that grace upon your life. Now, does that mean you need, aren't married? I, no, I don't believe that. But do you see how the West has mocked our God and the sacrament that is Christ in the church. We know so much about Western religious ceremonies from the Revelation when we see the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, descend out of heaven wearing white. She's presented to God Almighty, the Lamb of God, and it's a holy, sacred thing, and God the Father oversees it, and we want to go to the justice of the peace? We want to go find some hireling ding-dong that got his ordination papers online? Only the West created that kind of apostasy in the name of freedom and separation of church and state and religious liberty or freedom from religion. Again, I'm not saying if you had a wedding that looked like any one of those that you're not married, but I want you to understand how critical and sacred and holy this thing is. Our God instituted religious ceremonies on purpose for, for celebration, for honor, for veneration, to make power available. You go to the justice of the peace, he doesn't lay hands on you. There's nothing sacred there. You do it for tax purposes and income filings and whatever. So let's talk about the ceremony. Christian and Jewish wedding ceremonies differ in their ordinances, because, uh, but they are identical in their symbolic accomplishments. Now, I could probably make a whole service out of just the Jewish, the evolution of the Jewish wedding ceremony, so just hear the high points. Some of you might be more knowledgeable on this than me, but hear the high points. Jewish marriage begins with the betrothal. Uh, or what we might call an engagement, but for the Jews and under Jewish law, a betrothal is legally binding and it involves a bride price and it might even involve a document. Under the Old Testament law, if you had sex with a woman, you were instantly betrothed. If you raped her, you were instantly betrothed. So even to this day, under Talmudic law and Talmudic interpretation, there are three ways to betroth. Dowry, document, sex. Because when you have sex with somebody, you are bound to them. Paul said the same in Corinthians. You are joined to them. This is why we save ourselves for marriage. This is why we save ourselves for marriage. This is why we save ourselves for marriage. 
To dissolve the betrothal would then require a divorce. And yet, they are not yet a couple. She must agree and consent because she cannot be betrothed or wedded against her will. To dissolve a betrothal would require a divorce, and it could be done so for infidelity or uh, carnality, sinfulness. But this is what Joseph did when he found out Mary, Joseph and Mary of the nativity story, uh, when she, he found out she was pregnant, they were betrothed. Well, in the betrothal, the other thing that takes place in Jewish tradition is she would now begin to wear a veil, which meant she was betrothed and set apart. But if Mary turns up pregnant, obviously it means she has broken her fidelity, she has committed adultery, and she is due a divorce. And the Bible says of Joseph, being a just man, he wanted to put her away quietly. That put her away is divorce. It would still require a legal document to put her away. And yet they were not officially married. They were simply betrothed. They were betrothed, but not wedded. And yet the whole thing is still legally binding. The man would then depart from his bride or his, yeah, uh, his fiance, as we would say, to go and to, quote, prepare a place for her that she might come and be with him after they are officially wedded. He would typically in those days add on to his family's tent, and that would be called a canopy or a hoopah, which is kind of fun. Hoopah. But there's a C on the front of it, so there has phlegm. Hoopah. With all things Semitic, there's a lot of phlegm involved. <laughs> this is not the final step of matrimony that is sealed with the ceremony and then consummation, but they too are still considered espoused. So going and preparing a place is not the final step. The wedding will technically take place at the bridegroom's home, his tent, his apartment, etc., when she enters in under his authority. Now, under Jewish tradition, there's no, there's no officiant. There's no rabbi. Rabbis are a later development in the uh, post-Babylonian uh, captivity era. The, the wedding, the, the marriage is officially done. The last step is to enter into his house under his hoopah. Because in doing so, it symbolizes she's left her father's covering, and now she's entered under her husband's covering. If you're a feminist, this is very offensive to you. If you're shrieking at the patriarchy, well, you're right in line with the rest of America. But this is Jewish culture. So you can hate it, but right now it's popular to be called anti-Semitic. She would leave her father's hoopah, his canopy, his tent, his compound. And then when, he would, when the, the bridegroom would come to his wife and say, I've come for you now. Now we will go and be joined together. It was because he had prepared a place for her and was ready to receive her and take on the full responsibility of now being her husband. She would then enter into his hoopah or under his canopy, and that symbolized her transition from her father's authority to her husband's authority because this is marriage, and women don't operate apart from their own authority. The bride veils her face as Rebecca did, and the husband removes it as she enters his home. We still have that tradition today. For the Jews, entering the wedding canopy is the consecrating and final step of the marriage. At this point, she is transferred from being under her father's authority to being under her husband's authority. 
And wives, women, please hear me. You will always be under someone else's authority. But men are always under someone else's authority. There is nobody who is totally authority-free except for the homeless guy living under the bridge. And even he will be shooed off by the police or the DOT. So please don't shriek in terror at this horrific thing called the patriarchy. God just happens to be a patriarch. Do you believe in the patriarchy? Absolutely, and I fully endorse it. Because I see what a matriarchy does. Makes a bunch of sissy boys who are insecure and not sure what to do with their lives. In terms of the church, we are currently in this stage with Christ. We are currently in the stage of espousal. Paul said, I have espoused you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Jesus told the disciples, I go away now and I prepare a place for you that when I come again, I might receive you to myself that where I am there, you will be also. That's the rapture. So we are espoused. We're betrothed, but we're not married yet. The revelation shows us the marriage, the lamb's wife, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. So we're in the betrothal stage. And we've also been given the bride price, which is the earnest of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our betrothal. It's pretty cool when you understand Jewish culture. All this stuff was taught really strongly in the 90s, and it was a lot of fun. And then, I don't know, secret friendlyism, hot coffee, and skinny jeans took over the church. I might share this with you because it's profound. On the flight back from South Africa, my seatmate, it was a Lebanese guy. He actually lives in Maryland now. Very, very brilliant guy. Probably his mid to late 30s. We're corresponding now. He's Lebanese. He's from a political family, very influential political family in Lebanon. Muslim by birth, but he said, I'm not a practicing Muslim, but he understands Christianity pretty well. Lebanon is a very Christian and Muslim nation. They live together in perfect harmony. No issues there, even though you have Hezbollah in the South. So we were talking all this, and he was asking me theological questions. And somehow we got on the topic of seeker-friendly churches and churches that look like nightclubs. And he said, sorry? I said, yeah, we have a lot of churches in my country in the West that look like nightclubs. Have you ever been to one? He said, no, no, I've been to a lot of Christian churches in Lebanon and Europe. I said, well, those look like cathedrals. Yeah, yeah. He said, they're very honorable. I said, no, no, I'm talking about churches that look like nightclubs. And he, he was having trouble wrapping his mind around Christians going to a church that looked like a nightclub. And he said, why is that? I said, I'm not really sure. He said, to change the house of God into a nightclub, wouldn't you first have to change the gospel message? That from the words of a secular Muslim at 38,000 feet over the Atlantic. I said, sir, you are not far from the truth. Spot on. In the terms of the church, we are currently in the betrothal stage with Christ. We have been espoused to him as a chaste virgin. He has gone to prepare a place for us that where he is, we might be also. To terminate this covenant would require a divorce at this point. And he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. One that would only be merited by infidelity, though James says, you adulterous generation. But even as God divorced Israel... And even as Joseph sought to do with Mary when she was discovered to be with child, it would seem from the allegory Paul has invoked that the Lord could divorce us if we proved to be unfaithful. Because we're not married yet. We're betrothed. And James says, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. 
The Lord will return for us at a time we know not, so we must remain faithful to him. Even as the bride under the Old Testament Jewish culture, she never knew when her bridegroom would return for her, and that would be the day, the last day she saw mom and dad and would go with him to where he was at. What if she was flirting with boys at the well? What if she'd removed her veil of purity? How would her man find her then? If we've found to be unfaithful, can the Lord legally divorce us? I believe so, because he divorced the Jews. He called them adulteresses. He called them whores. And he said, I've given you a bill of divorcement. And he did. And then you know who he remarried or rebetrothed? The church. He can legally divorce us according to the law of Moses, so we have entered into an, officially, an official betrothal with him. And I would also add that this terminology, excuse me, this typology would seem to undermine once saved, always saved. But let's talk about Christian marriage tradition. This begins with an engagement. We're engaged, as we call it, sealed with an engagement ring, which is admittedly a very new cultural phenomenon fed by De Beers Diamond Company of South Africa and Tiffany and Company out of New York. In fact, De Beers, the diamond company out of uh, Kimber, South Africa, I actually put in a resume with them 25 years ago to try to go work for them in Sierra Leone. I got a reply from them. I should have kept the letter because it'd be cool to have. They said, we appreciate your interest. We don't need young geologists at this time. And that kept me out of Africa. But De Beers had so many diamonds in the early part of the 19th, excuse me, 20th century, they had to figure out what to do about it. So it's actually De Beers with a massive surplus of diamonds that fed the diamond engagement ring concept. That's only 100 years old. And then they worked with a marketing firm, uh, Saks Fifth Ave or Fourth Avenue in New York to see how they could market it. And so it was a young single mother post-World War II who came up with the adage that a diamond is forever. She did that, I think, 1946, 1948, and that took off. And then every woman had to have a diamond engagement ring. So it's a relatively new phenomenon. Even the Jews have rings now as well though that's not how it was originally done. But that engagement ring symbolizes I'm taken, just like the Jewish veil would symbolize I'm taken. There's an engagement season to allow for proper preparation and blending of finances and plans and hearts and families. The wedding ritual is a little different than the Jewish tradition. We have an officiant, the minister who has been ordained by God and recognized by the state. The revelation reveals that the bride, which is the new Jerusalem, the lamb's wife, comes down from heaven dressed in white, having prepared herself for her bridegroom. My wife taught last week on being prepared for marriage and the revelation and Ephesians talks about being prepared for marriage. So if you have to be prepared for marriage, it's possible to be ill-prepared. And at what point are you so ill-prepared for anything, you just don't do it? Are you ill-prepared for the military? You don't go in. Ill-prepared for a trip? You don't get to take it. Ill-prepared to buy a house? You don't buy the house. But sometimes we think, well, I'm old enough now. I should go ahead and get married. But what if you're not prepared? She's prepared herself for her wedding day. For our marriages, the groom does not come for his bride. She is brought down the aisle by her father, and she's presented to her bridegroom, symbolizing the same transfer of authority. The father walks her down because it's his authority to do so. Our ceremonies even say, who gives this woman? Because she can only be given by authorization. And in ideal situations, the father says, her mother and I. 
which symbolizes a transfer of authority because women are never on their own authority. In our marriage ceremonies, the father even literally takes his daughter's hand under his arm and presents it to the husband's hand because now the husband is about to lead this woman in paths of righteousness for God's namesake. If you're not willing to follow that husband, go to the Elvis impersonator because that's about what your marriage is going to be like. It's a joke. So much of what we do in the church is just so ceremonial showmanship. The, the bride, the, the, the dress represents purity. How many of these women walking down this, this aisle deserve? I believe in forgiveness. I believe in restoration. I believe in under the blood. But I, I did a wedding ceremony here, and I knew the fiance girl was having sex with the guy at McDonald's before they got married. Not her man, somebody else. I'm like, do you deserve to wear that white dress? No, you don't. I don't even think your fiance knows you were cheating on him. I wonder if the Lord would start speaking during ceremonies and say, tell her to go put something black on. At least put some camo on so we can't hardly see her. But the, the white represents purity, washed, forgiven. I know we have pasts, and I'm not condemning anybody for the past, but the past ought to be the past. All right. She will now be under her husband's authority. The groom at that point removes her veil as well, if we have one. We don't do that so much anymore. The two profess vows to each other and enter into the covenant that is actualized by the minister's declaration. And what is that minister's declaration? But by the authority invested in me, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Until that moment, there is no husband and wife. It's just a ceremony. Now, coming back to the Jews, Dylan, put that one picture up. Nowadays, the Jews or the Israeli people, the Jewish people, they don't go to somebody's house. They have a ceremony outside or they have a ceremony in a synagogue, but they still maintain the hoopah. And it's called the wedding. See if you can zoom in on that for me. It's called the wedding canopy. And once they walk under it, they're married. Now, there's a Jewish rabbi there because that's a modern construct. He even has a, uh, a veil around him, that kind of uh, cloak. And once they turn to each other, he'll put that thing around her to symbolize you're now under my authority. Another picture there, Dylan. The next one. Every wedding will have this marriage canopy. I was trying to find the picture watching the Gaza war right now. A lot of the soldiers are getting married in the battlefield and they're erecting makeshift wedding canopies so these soldiers, men and women, can be married in combat because that's all it takes. Because she's saying, I come under your authority. If you're not willing to do that, you're not prepared for marriage. That would probably cut most of our divorce rates in half. Because honestly, the issues we're dealing with are the post-feminist women who want to tell their husband what to do. But then at the same time, it could be she married the wrong guy and she's having to disciple him. You never marry a guy you have to pursue. You never marry a guy you have to disciple. You're asking for horror. The power of God now goes into effect, gracing the man to be a husband and the woman to be a wife. The two are now one, and the marriage can now be consummated. Without sex, the marriage is not consummated, and even our civil laws recognize this. 
not to be graphic, but Jewish tradition states that after they walk into the marriage canopy, the hoopah, they would then go in and consummate the marriage. And under Jewish law, Old Testament Jewish law, the hymen being torn, she would bleed. He would then take the garment and hang it out the window so the whole family would know she was pure and they don't have to divorce or stone her. That's how serious this is. And you know what? In our modern culture, I just, I just don't want to be left out at Christmas time because all I want for Christmas is you. And the sorority sisters are getting married and I'm alone. Valentine's really hard. Life is hard, sweetie. Unlike the other sacraments, which are rituals of limited occurrence, marriage is lived out every moment of the day. So marriage is a lived sacrament. Marriage is the second biggest decision of your life. Marriage is the building block of society, so the church is responsible for severe societal erosion because every divorce with kids ruins kids, and they will be damaged, and they will need so much help and love and care. They will take that damage into their marriage, and we possibly have an exponentially detrimental event. And the parents don't care. They just want to be happy. There is a powerful sermon from a, a Calvinist, a reform minister that says, there's no biblical calling to happiness. That's an American thing. Marriage isn't just a sacrament, it's a covenant. And even in a physical separation from one's spouse due to travel or daily requirements, there are still covenantal requirements on behalf of both members. We live this thing out. If I'm in Africa, I maintain my covenant by honoring my wife, praying for her, not flirting with women, not picking up women, not checking out women. There's covenantal responsibilities even in our absence and separation. And I can demonstrate my covenant by being over there talking about my wife, bragging about my wife, praying for my wife, checking on my wife. And her the same thing here. Marriage will either make the rest of your days a tree of life, or if you do this wrong, your marriage will make your life, the rest of your life, a molested hornet's nest. When we were kids living in Knoxville, we were playing hide-and-seek around the neighbor's house, and one summer we came around and the big air conditioning unit was there, and we noticed there was this newly built hornet's nest in the corner, and being a bunch of redneck kids in the early 80s, you can't leave a hornet's nest undisturbed. We knew exactly what it was. You don't have to be old to know what a hornet's nest is. You're not in the South. So we got about, I don't know, maybe here for me to Greg, however good we thought, 15, 20 feet our aim was. We grabbed a bunch of rocks, started throwing rocks at the hornet's nest. <laughs> One or two wasps, hornets would come out. And that wasn't exciting. Throw some more rocks, they just sink right into that paper. So then I, somebody said, I don't know if it was me, somebody said, let's go get a stick. So somebody did. Somebody produced a stick from somebody's yard, and we got as close as we could with that stick, uh, ideally a longer stick, and just stick it in there and just turn it in circles. And then run as fast as you can because that's some people's marriage. Not a tree of life, a molested hornet's nest, which stings you anytime you turn around. I know this to be the fact in spirit-filled churches because some of your marriages are molested hornet's nests. And maybe it's because you were ignorant when you got married and you got married for the wrong reasons. 
I'm going to read some stuff to you out of the Talmud. The Jews worked this out and said, this is why you should and shouldn't get married. The problem facing the church today is that it possesses a very secular view of marriage. The church's doctrine of marriage has been largely co-opted by movies, sitcoms, magazines, music, and now social media feeds and reality TV shows. Uh, the name of the game now is how big of a wedding can you make? And we have shows like Bridezilla. I would never marry Bridezilla because that's going to be wifezilla. There's a reason fantasy movies conclude with, and they lived happily ever after, and the gritty murder mystery dramas begin after the couple returns from the honeymoon. <laughs> Dr. Barclay summarizes it by saying, most Christians prepare more for a wedding than they do the marriage. Think about that. You spend more time in six months preparing for the event that will last you three hours of an afternoon than you will spending to be fixed and prepared to be a human in a covenant called marriage. If marriage must be prepared for, then how many Christians enter marriage ill-prepared? And if entering into other commitments ill-prepared results in disaster, well, what about ill-prepared marriages? So let's reevaluate the covenant and sacrament of marriage from the Bible and even the Talmud. Again, if you don't know, the Talmud is basically Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. We know that intention is key. Why are you getting married? Why do you want to be married? Why do you want to be married? Loneliness is not a reason to be married. Lust is not a reason to be married. Keeping up with your sorority sisters is not a reason to be married. To fulfill a Disney dream icon is not a reason to be married. It's never like the Disney movies. It's never like the Disney movies. It's never like the Disney movies. It's definitely not like Christian romance novels, of which you should never read any, because that's lunacy. The fact that you can make money off of horny Christian women writing some so-called Christian romance novel. It's just mental porn for a woman. Anyway, that is good preaching because I know it hurts people, those, those Christian romance novels. It's escapism that ruins a woman's heart because there's not reality to it. And Zondervan can publish it. I don't, I don't care. Lifeway can publish it. It's still smut. Anyway, all right. Why do you want to get married? What is your motive? Is it cultural pressure, loneliness, lust, social media fed jealousy? The rabbis warned the Jews about ill motives. Let me quote you from the Talmud. There are some who marry for sexual indulgence, and there are some who marry for money. There are some who marry for social advancement, and there are some who marry with sincere intention. Of him who marries for sexual indulgence, the scripture declares, this is Hosea 5, they have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children. So the implication is you marry because you're horny, your kids are going to be demonic. Because sex produces kids, and you didn't, you didn't pick who you married based on the Bible. You picked who you married because you were lusty, and the ramification is children who are treacherously and demonic. And that will destroy your adulthood. That will destroy your, your grandparent years. To raise up kids that hate God, you'll begat strange children because you married a strange woman who would have sex with you. So there's a curse to getting married just for sex. Of him who marries for money, Scripture declares, now shall the new moon devour them with their portions. That's also Hosea 5, implying that a month will come and a month will go and their money will be gone. 
He who marries for social advancement will ultimately be deposed from his high position. But he who marries with sincere intention will ultimately have children who will be saviors in Israel. Now, think about it. For the Jewish mindset, the whole reason we get married and we're intimate is to have seed to advance God. Americans don't think that way. We think about kids as picture taking people that we can post on social media to make all of our sorority sisters jealous. And they're only cute till they're about six. And you take a thousand pictures and you're screaming at everybody in those pictures. And then you got to Photoshop half of them. And then you curate the top three and there's nothing real about your life. And that began when you paid money to have friends in a sorority. I don't know why I'm hitting on sororities this morning. I don't endorse them in the least bit for nothing. Maintaining a biblically grounded purpose for marriage is key. What is the purpose of the covenant from the beginning? You know this from Genesis, that from the beginning, God gave man a woman to help man serve God. This is the reason, beginning from the book of Genesis, why we get married. Because a man needs help serving God, and the woman wants to help a man serve God. We don't think that way. That's foreign even to you. And I've told you that a thousand times in all my curriculum. I've written on it and teaching on it. If you're not serving God, I don't think you need to be married. If you're not advancing the kingdom, I don't think you need to be married because you have nothing in common with your spouse except secularism. And that will fade. But if you are both intent on serving the God who made you and the God who created marriage, that goes a long way to gluing your destiny together. You can disagree with me because you're American and secular in your mindset. But Jesus, when he taught about marriage in the Gospels, he said it was not so from the beginning. Teaching us, we look to Genesis to see how God intended marriage to be. Not real housewives of Beverly Hills, not the sorority sisters, not Instagram, uh, not social media, the book of beginnings. God looks at man and says, man needs help. It's not good that he's alone. He's not lonely. He's alone. But he's not lonely. He's alone in his work for God. And God says it's not good for him to be alone. I will make him a help. Not a sex doll. Not a slave. I will make him help. What's Adam doing in the moment? Serving God alone. He doesn't even realize how much he needs help. The wife was taken from the man to help the man accomplish his purpose. The rabbis taught... Why is it then stated if a man take a wife, Deuteronomy 22, 13, and not a woman take a man? This is what the rabbis taught. It is the man that pursues the woman and not the woman that pursues the man. Certainly, the owner of a lost item searches for what he has lost and not the other way around. Since the woman was created from man's lost side, it is the man that seeks that which he has lost. So girls, quit asking guys out. That's weird. It's insecure. It's needy. It's daddy issues. It's a control issue. Men never go on a date when a girl asks you out. That's a warning flag. I lost my rib. I'm seeking that which I've lost. My wife didn't lose a rib. Why is she looking for me? Maybe she wants to control things. Maybe she's fearful. Maybe she's insecure. I know with this post-feminism, and we have celebrities now that propose to their husbands, Who's going to take whose last name? Who's going to wear the pants in that family? 
Who's going to pay the bills? Whose name comes first? Can I ask you something? When people talk about your marriage, whose name do they put first? And you'll see who's in charge. When people cite you, Pastor and Miss Manda, Chris and Manda, whose name do they put first? There's something that comes natural because they're already testifying. They know who runs that family. If it's Manda and Chris, it kind of is a de facto, oh, she's in charge. Is it Angie and Robert? It's not Robert. It's Brother Robert and Miss Angie. We know who runs that family. I think it's pretty profound wisdom from the Jews. Proverbs 18.22 confirms it. Whosoever finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor of the Lord. Whoever finds a wife, he who finds a wife, that means he's doing the looking. She's not out there trolling. In this betrothal pursuit, even the pre-engagement is meant to honor the God-ordained sacred chain of authority. Even in courting, even in dating, that needs to honor God and his chain of command. Amen. Because if she's bigger than life now, she will be in the marriage and she'll end up elbowing him out of the way. And now the marriage will wobble out of orbit because she's got a stronger personality. And maybe she married the guy with a weaker personality because she has to be in charge because she's gripped with fear. First Peter three will solve it when it says, don't fear, but be like Sarah, who with faith in God called Abraham Lord. That doesn't mean master, but yes, sir. And submitted to his leadership. So men must seek a wife that understands biblical authority. And women must not settle for a guy they have to pursue. If you have to pursue him, stop. Stop. It's not worth marrying. He's not, if you have to pursue him, when will this stop? When will he finally get with the program and do his big boy thing? You don't want to raise kids your whole life. He must also understand biblical authority. A woman who has to disciple her husband, leading him by the hand, will live a miserable life and raise confused children. A woman who has to disciple her husband, leading him by the hand, will live a miserable life and raise confused children. All right, next point. They serve, husband and wives, this is why we get married. We need help. And then once we get married, we serve God together. We serve God together. Now, Hopefully you're serving God together. We're trying to raise the standard for the next generation. Maybe we have to have this in-depth teaching because our nation doesn't know who could get married and for what reasons or how many should be married at once. You understand we have no understanding about marriage in our nation anymore. You know that. We serve together as husband and wife in God's garden. We exist to serve God together. A man who recognizes this calling will never look for a wife who is yet to understand this. You don't go looking for women, guys, who don't serve in the house of God. I don't care how, what her curves look like. I don't care what swings and what jiggles. If she's not in the house of God, why are you even talking to her in this elevated height of romance? You're not going to fix her. If she's, not serving in the, if she's not in the garden, don't talk to her. Guys are really dumb. I mean, just dumb, 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 dumb. You deer hunters, you get it. That buck goes into rut, or the doe does. The deer goes chasing after it. He can think of nothing but sex. Her rut hormones have him just on red alert, and he'll just walk right up to a hunter and just get blasted. Amen. Right, Chase? 
You hunters, you agree? Deer are stupid. That's why we hunt them in the rut. They just they don't see anything. All they do is smell sex hormones. Same with human beings. When you're lusty, you don't even think what God has to say about how you pick your wife. Man, she's got the right curves. Man, look at that tail. That's what the deer's thinking. I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> There's an animalistic. And Proverbs says it this way. He, he passes on to an arrow, pierces his heart, and he's taken in the snare of the fowler, and he goes down to hell and doesn't even know it. So then the Proverbs about five or six times equates horny men to stupid animals. And yet the word of God is anchoring us to stability because life is bigger than the honeymoon. You have to look longer term because you're going to have kids with this person. What kind of parent will they be? Because once you're past the honeymoon stage and you've got kids, things change. And the last thing you want is your kids to be hell on earth, demonized rebels who bring you misery the rest of your life. And then you watch your grandkids curse God and go transgender non-binary. All because you settled for something that swiggled the same right way or looked at you or texted you or swiped left for you. It mocks our God. This thing is way more serious than we ever give it respect for. We, we had friends, I would loosely call them friends, in Indy. And all of us were there. Gertie was there. Steve-O was there. My wife and I were there. They got married in the big AG church and the pastor officiated. They all came in wearing outlandish tuxedos with top hats, remember Gertie, and canes. And what was the song he came into? Pimping ain't easy. White guy. And the pastor, who at the time was sleeping with a lot of different women, which was discovered two years later, he comes in swaggering. White guy. This is a mostly white church. I mean, not to be racial, but pimping ain't easy doesn't sound like a white person's best hit. But they come in. That's what they march into with the wedding entry. Pimping ain't easy. Are they married today, honey? Not married today. How many kids? Two kids. Assemblies of God, spirit-filled, married in the house of God. I'm sure the Lord Jesus would like to line up the Western church and just smack us into oblivion. But the pain we inflict upon ourselves is judgment enough. All because young people can't listen and trust those who have their better interest in mind. We serve together. A man who recognizes his calling will never look for a wife who's yet to understand her calling in the kingdom. This will prevent any missionary dating. We don't try to win somebody to Christ by dating them. There is such great fulfillment and partnership when you and your spouse can live in fellowship around the common goal of the kingdom, and the kingdom is that ultimate goal. The husband leads his wife in their kingdom assignment. She joins herself to his work, and she makes his work and its success her top priority. So ladies, don't fall in love with a man that hasn't been entrusted with kingdom work yet. Don't, even, don't be, even be interested in a guy. Number one, you don't have permission to be interested in a guy who doesn't go to church. Number two, you don't fall in love with a guy who just simply attends church. He needs to be committed and found trustworthy in the house of God. What will be your family's purpose if he doesn't have an assignment in the kingdom? And if he isn't going anywhere to happen for God, neither will you. Women should find kingdom-assigned men very attractive. 
Women should find kingdom-entrusted men very, very attractive. And if you meet a guy who doesn't have a kingdom assignment, your heart needs to say, what's wrong with you? Hey, what's your name? How are you doing? What you do in your local church? Well, I just attend. That's when you start swimming backwards, ladies. All right. Well, it's nice meeting you. Yeah, I'll see you in heaven. Let me go over here and go home. But women aren't that way. They're dumb. Just like women. I mean, just like men. Men are dumb. Women will fall for whoever gives them the first round of attention. And they will condemn their life to going around a monotonous, dead-end life. One of the things I pray with my wife and I ask her all the time, I say, honey, I want to make sure we have no regrets. I want to make sure you don't get 20 years into this and think another man could have been a better mate. I want to make sure that I provide for you and the kids the best humanly possible by God's grace. I don't want you to regret having married me. And I know not every man in this church would ask their wife that. And I'm sure many wives in this church think the exact thing I just said I hope I never have to hear. I know because I've heard it out of some of your mouths. My life could be better if I'd married somebody better. Marriage is a serious thing. Our culture teaches us to mock it and to treat it like confetti. Pretty for a moment and then trampled on later. I've seen churched men begin to date lukewarm women who only seem to take an interest in God because the guy she likes seems to like God. Would she do the same thing if the guy was interested in NASCAR? Would she take on a new interest in NASCAR? I have seen carnal guys pursue women who love God and then live around the local church only to show interest in church because the girl does. In both cases, the carnal person rarely truly converts and usually succeeds in pulling their love interest away from the garden of God to which they were originally assigned. Misery always ensues. The only question is how long down the road before the misery flares up. I've watched that time and time and time again. Galatians says, who did bewitch you? Who did bewitch you? Who did bewitch you? Two more points. They raised their children, husband and wife. This is why marriage is serious. So that we're looking from the book of Genesis. And notice loneliness and sex are not at the top four. Why we get married? To do the work, to work together, to raise children. We raise children. When you start courting, you need to be looking at them thinking, what kind of husband, excuse me, what kind of father, what kind of wife, what kind of mother is in there? The first commandment of the entire Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. So we get married to have children. The kingdom is expanded by offspring. Raising children with the person you're interested in must be forefront. When you start to date, you've got to be looking at them. How do they handle kids? What's their patience level like? Do they, are they interested in helping a boy become a man? Are they interested in helping a girl become a young woman? Or are they just interested, interested in video games? Are they just interested in sports? Are they interested in the next hobby? We need to be asking questions like, what kind of father will he be? What kind of mother will he be? Not how many shelter pets would they be happy to adopt? You think marriage can be miserable? You haven't experienced the pain of watching your kids grow up to curse God and live as a societal failure.
when I get to go overseas, like I just returned from, it becomes, it becomes marriage therapy for my wife and I, because I'm away from you. I'm away from my kids. I'm left with my thoughts. I'm left with some downtime. I'm away from the American spirit. I'm away from the cookful spirit. I'm away from my buffetings of the enemy here. And I can see my marriage and our covenant and our parenting very clearly. And it allows my wife and I to have some pretty wonderful conversations, typically an hour and a half to two hours a night, every night that I'm gone. And I thank God for Wi-Fi because it makes it a free call. Otherwise, it'd be a thousand dollars of phone calls, which would be worth it. But it allows us to constantly evaluate where we're at in this race called marriage. How are we doing with our kids? But one of the things I truly value for my wife is that when I'm out of town or out of country and I travel a lot, I never think about my kids and their safety. Now, I think about my kids and I miss them, but I trust my wife implicitly. And I know they're going to be just fine, that she's going to raise them up. She's not going to sleep until 10. She's not going to be drunk. She's not going to be hungover. She's not going to be popping pills. She's not going to be chasing kids on Instagram. She's not going to be wasting half of her afternoon posting pictures. She's a productive woman. So you don't marry a lazy woman, nor do you marry a lazy man. Deuteronomy 6 commands God's people to teach their children the Bible every day. Malachi 2 teaches that God is looking from marriages uh, the offspring of godly seed. Proverbs 22.6 commands us to train up parent, uh, tra- parents to train up children in the way that they should go. The sages taught the same thing in the Talmud. Listen to the word from the, sab- the sages. Now remember, the sages or the rabbis, they were completely consumed of trying to prevent another generation of slavery. So hear that because this is the heart behind what we're about to read. Israel went into Babylonian slavery because the people did not know the word of God, the Torah. So once they come out of captivity, the sages and the rabbis arise to teach God's people the Torah or the law of Moses to make sure we never go back to being slaves again. Pretty good motive. So listen to their wisdom when they talk about how you pick a mate. One should always be willing to sell all he has in order to marry the daughter of a Torah scholar. Now that's the bride price. You're not buying her, you're betrothing her. Because if he dies or if he is exiled and he cannot raise his children, he can be assured that his sons will be trained in the Torah. Since their mother will ensure that they are well-educated. And one should never marry the daughter of an ignoramus. That's what the Talmud says. Because if he dies or is exiled, his sons will become ignoramuses. So the woman must have a desire and a hunger and a knowledge of the scripture that his children might as well. I know that should I die, my kids would still fulfill their destinies because of my wife's total commitment to Christ and vice versa. And it is also why, uh, beginning 10, 11 years ago, we gave the Scudders all legal custody of our children should something happen to both of us. I didn't even give it to anybody in my blood family. I gave it to Brett and Bobby Scudder because I saw how they were raising their kids and I knew that they would make sure my kids made heaven victoriously with the doctrine I want them taught in. And it is also why the Scudders gave us legal custody of their kids before they turned 18. So we dodged that bullet. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) My children's discipleship of salvation is more important to me than anything else. And that's one of the things you look for 
when you're engaged or courting, not what her curves look like. That's awesome, wonderful. Not how big his muscles are. They'll go south eventually. Gravity is effective on everything, unless he's just super disciplined. But what kind of parent will this person be? What kind of leader? What will they do? Let me read you one or two. I'm almost done. Are you learning anything this morning? I want to recalibrate our understanding of marriage. I'll read you another passage from the Gemara concerning marriage. <laughs> Some of this is comical to me. It is written in the book of Ben Sirah. A good wife is a good gift for her husband. As it is written, a good one will be placed in the bosom of a God-fearing man. But a bad wife is like a plague to her husband. What is his remedy? He should divorce her and be well cured of his plague. <laughs> now, this gets into doctrine that Jesus Christ addressed in the time where he, he had to correct it in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. But it goes on to say, A beautiful wife, happy is her husband. The number of his days are doubled. His pleasure in her beauty makes him feel as though he has lived twice as long. So that's an interesting thought from the Talmud. I, I, certainly there needs to be some attraction there, though the Bible does say beauty will fade. He also says, How does one define wealth? Rabbi Tarfon says, A wealthy man is anyone who has a wife whose actions are pleasant. A man who has a wife whose actions are pleasant. That's nice and sweet. The next sentence is, and also anyone who has a bathroom close to his table. That's what it says next. That's wealth in my opinion as well, because I've been places where the bathroom was not very close to where I was, and I needed it to be very close. But I can say yes and amen to both. When a woman's actions are pleasant, that's wealth. And when you got to go and there's a toilet really close, man, that's prosperity too. All right, so let me summarize here. Marriage is important, and we've not even talked about sex. We've not talked about pleasantries. We've talked about what the Bible lays out first and foremost in the book of Genesis. But marriage is so important because it reflects Christ in the church. And I would tell you, not every marriage in here reflects Christ in the church. We aim for that, though. It requires the man to constantly grow to be like Jesus. And it requires the woman to trust her husband like the church trusts in Christ. And together they too accomplish the will of God the Father, both the church in Christ and the husband and his wife. This may be the greatest responsibility and burden of marriage, that is reflecting Christ in the church. So we ask this question, does the husband reflect Christ's love and sacrifice for the church? Husbands, does your love for your wife and your willingness to lay down your life for her and to put her first, does it reflect Christ's love for the church? And we ask wives, do you reflect the church's submission and trust and labor for Christ? I wouldn't marry a woman who sleeps until 10 o'clock every morning. God Almighty, whew, that'll wear me out. What are my kids doing? I got to go to work. Never marry a lazy woman. That's so counterintuitive to her nature. What is, what's broken in her that makes her want to sleep in all day long? It's not praiseworthy. Do we reflect Christ in the church? And then, because I know my audience, I ask this. Or do we just manage to look like two hillbillies fighting over beer in a trailer somewhere off Possum Holler? What's your marriage look like? 
Does it reflect Christ in the church? Can people see the mystery that is salvation, the mystery that is the manifested Son of God and His love for a people called the church? Or are we just looking like the world, fighting like a bunch of toothless hillbillies? What does our marriage look like? Because it's a calling for both the husband and the wife to come up. Great is the mystery, the sacrament. But coming back to my first statement, are you, do you have a fixed mindset and this is just how you're going to be the rest of your life? And if that's the case, I hate it for your spouse. Or do you have a constant growth mindset that says, I can get better, I can get better, I can get better? My wife and I regularly sit and look at each other and we ask, do you have any regrets? What can I do better? And then we pray ourselves, Lord, help me be this for Amanda. Father, help me be this for Chris so that we can keep improving our marriage because ultimately I want my kids to want exactly what we have because I know that what, our ha- what we have will glorify God and make it to the end. I don't want to live like a bunch of redneck, white trash coons fighting each other and my kids observe that and hate marriage or go off and start sleeping around trying to find a daddy figure somewhere. Or my boys start sleeping around trying to find somebody that'll love them. I want my kids to see what we have and say, I want that. I want it so bad. Father, bring it to me. Marriage is a great mystery. It's just the great, I say the greatest sacrament. Catholics believe communion is the greatest sacrament because it's the presence of Christ, they believe. Transmogrification or whatever, transubstantiation. P31 space. (laughs) Whatever. Marriage is a great mystery because it reflects Christ and the church. And if you're not ready to do that, then you are not ready for marriage. Amen.